Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scripture throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are nearing the end of our study in the book of Titus, and class teacher Doug Brady is bringing us so much information from this very tiny book in the Bible. As we have gone through these three chapters, we have discovered that the Apostle Paul, who has written this book, or letter, to young Titus, who is the pastor of the church on the Isle of Crete, so much information regarding the operation of the church and the importance of spreading the gospel. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church, located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new worship center. We would invite you to visit our class if you are in the Dallas area. Well, I see Doug is at the podium, ready to begin this lesson from Titus. Here now is our longtime teacher and my very good friend, Doug Brady. We've been studying Paul's letter to Titus concerning his oversight of the churches located uh, on the Isle of Crete. In chapter 3 uh, of, the book of, of the book, Paul speaks to how to relate to the pagan society in which those churches were found. And last week we began to examine something I called the prime directive to believers. And we're going to look back at that just a second and, and see what it is that Paul told us about this special verse that's right in the middle of it. It goes like this, but when the kindness of our God, of God our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Better translation last those words is everlasting life. Now, let's look again at some of the key points of this verse before we go forward. First and foremost, I want you to see that he saved us. We can't save ourselves. We're unable to save ourselves. He saved us. In addition to that, our salvation is, has nothing to do with anything good that we have done in our lives. He makes it very clear there. It is not based on any of the good deeds we have done. There's nothing good that we can do to qualify ourselves. We can't earn salvation. Our salvation is due instead to the mercy that the Father and the Son chose to show us as a result of their love for us. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, demonstrating his love for us. Now, this passage next talks about the means for salvation and how we're saved. First, it's the washing of regeneration. Washing of regeneration. The cleansing of regeneration. What is 
the implement, shall we say, or the solution that is used to wash us. Actually, it's the Word of God. God's Word is what is used. We're covered by the blood, but it's, it's that washing. It speaks about it in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, where he's comparing Jesus's relationship to the church to that of a husband and a wife. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. That is, cleanse and set apart, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And so the concept here is, in the means, what is the first thing that needs to be present for someone to be saved? The gospel message, the word of God. That's the first thing. But there's something else that's got to be present. It's the second thing. And that is the renewing by the Holy Spirit. The renewing by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's not present, is somebody be saved? No. Those are the two things that have to be present. Does it require any effort whatsoever from the one being saved? Do they have to do anything? All they have to do is put their faith in Christ, but faith is, remember, a non-meritorious process. It puts the merit in the object of the faith as opposed to the one having the faith. And that is the key to this concept. And therefore, in order to get that message, we've been entrusted with the word. We're supposed to be able to rightly divide it so that we can take it to people who need to hear it. It's a shame how many people haven't heard it because we haven't shared it with them. Now, that's the means. The result, you see, in 2 Corinthians is that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Some people want to say, well, you know, the things that happened to me in my life, they've changed me forever. I can't get away from that. Oh, yes, you can. You can become a new creature. Those old things passing away. No longer part of what controls you at all. Now, Paul, this is the part we didn't get to talk too much about last Sunday. It's the next thing that Paul reminds us of, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly. Now, if you're reading ESV or the NASB, it will say richly. If you're reading the King James, it will say abundantly. It's kind of, to me, the, the, pretty close to the same thing. But I want us instead to find, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly. The Greek word translated here, richly or abundantly, is plusios. And you look it up, it means richly or abundantly. But it comes from the word meaning wealth or wealthy. In other words... Whether you say you're rich or you have an abundance, it's the same thing. This is something you have in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a permanent. It's something you can't lose. You know, it's interesting. If you ever read some of those books or articles about people who won the lottery, and they got all these millions of dollars, and how long does it last them? Not, long. Not very long at all. I guess the old saying, a fool and his money is soon parted. But be the case, this is something you never lose. This is always yours. 
And, you know, it, it seems to hearken to me, hearken back to the promise that Jesus made in John 10, 10, where he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's what God wants for us. But I think that brings up an important question. Are you experiencing the Holy Spirit richly? Would you describe your relationship with him as, as abundant or rich? And if the answer is no, then the next question is why not? Do we lay the, plain, the blame at the feet of God that he's just kind of limited here and he's not able to do it or not really able to fulfill it? Do, do we lay the blame of God? No, I don't think so. No, God's not limited. God's able to do whatever. So who is preventing the Holy Spirit from being richly appearing in your life? I think we are. We look no farther than ourselves for the answer to that question. But then we say, why? Or how? How am I limiting? What, what's going on here? Well, you know, I use a, I have a, a, an example or an analogy that I really like and my wife hates. And it has to do with a glass that you go up to the pantry and you get the glass and you're about to fill it up with water. And what do you see in the bottom? Cockroach. Yes. Maybe dead, maybe even moving a little bit. Now, I want you to, to think about something. There was a time in my life when I, if I would have found a glass like that, I'd have turned the hot water on, I'd have poured that cockroach out into the trash, taken the water, rinsed it around as it's in, and poured it out and then used the glass. Then I married Julie. <laughs> now, I would... Uh, rinse it with the hot water and then take a brush with some soap on it and rinse it around down in there and then rinse the soap out real well and then use it. Do you think Julie would do that? No, she would do all of that, but then she would put it in the dishwasher on the high heat cycle so that it's autoclaved in effect. And then, and only then would she use that glass. Although there's a question that maybe she might just take the glass and throw it away. <laughs> now, the thing is, as you think about it, the whole act is to cleanse the glass so that it can be used. Which kind of cleansing would you like God to do in your life? The early Doug Brady cleansing, the later Doug, or the Julie Brady cleansing? which makes certain that there's not anything vile in that glass. That's the problem. The Holy Spirit cannot appear richly in your life if you're full of cockroaches. <laughs> and by cockroaches, I mean sin. Are there sins that you are practicing? You say, well, I'm not doing very many sins at all. Maybe just a few. It was like this one guy I knew, he told me, you know, I'm almost completely follow all of the Ten Commandments. I said, you do? Yeah, I do. I said, well, that's really good. Tell me where you, where you think you got a problem. Oh, it's just the three L's. I said, the three L's? I've never heard of the three L's. Well, lust, lying, and losing your temper. I said, you know, that seems to me involve about seven of those commandments. <laughs> but be that as it may, that's the reason... He's not richly in your life. What if you were to decide for the next 10 days, when I have my quiet time, 
And if you don't have a quiet time, then for the next 10 days, you're going to have one. You lead off by praying, God, I want the Holy Spirit to be richly poured out in my life. And whatever it is in me that is preventing you from doing that, will you please cleanse it? Now, will God answer a prayer like that? Now, that's contingent. He won't answer it if you don't really mean it. He just, he won't. You got to mean it. But if you mean it, you will see unbelievable changes. It may get a little hot for a while, but when that richness of the Holy Spirit starts to appear, you're going to say, why did I wait so long? And that's one of the things, fulfilling the prime directive is easy when the Holy Spirit is richly filled in your life. It's really easy. All right, let's, let's move on for, for just a second. Because Paul wants to remind us next of several important understandings or concepts we need to rehearse in our life. We need to go over in our life. The very first one, justified. Now, the word justified has a specific technical meaning, and then it also has a general meaning. Specific technical meaning has to do with justification in relation to sin. Now, I want maybe to use this as an example. I'm not a criminal lawyer, and I try to never handle criminal matters. But the little bit that I know is that if you commit a crime and you get arrested and you get found guilty and you have to pay a fine and you spend some time in jail or prison, jail meaning in the county, prison meaning in the state institution, that goes on your record. And if you ever get arrested again, they can't use that on your record to prove your guilt in that matter, but they can certainly use it in the punishment phase. Or employers can look at that to see uh, whether you have a criminal record. Or if you wanted to get into politics, people could look at your record. Now, we have a means in Texas, really identified by one word, expunge. That's a word some people aren't familiar with. But it allows a person to clean his record, but only under certain specific circumstances. But when your record is expunged, if they go looking to see if there was any criminal, it's not there. It's gone. Now, that's what justification is for your sin record. It completely eliminates it. It's not there. God says, I remember it no more. Now, can God ever forget anything? No. But he can choose not to remember. He said he puts it as far as his east is from the west, as far as the depths of the sea can be. And, and his sin is no longer. Will he ever remind us of our sin throughout eternity? No. It's, he has chosen to eliminate it from his memory. It's expunged. That's the first thing I want you to see as we look at this concept of justification. Also, as a result of, of being saved, we get to spend eternity with the creator of the universe. Eternity with the creator of the universe. Is that not amazing? Think of the things we'll be able to see just in the universe itself. Although we'll have a little time to see them and then it's going to all be changed. And then we'll get to see the new universe. But it is going to be amazing. So that's the first thing he says. I want you to remember, you've been justified by his grace. But then the next thing is 
that we were made heirs with Christ. We were made heirs with Christ. What does that mean? Heirs with Christ. Technically, in a legal way of speaking, we'd be co-heirs. But now, I want you to think about that. I guess I could use an example of a guy whose his name is Bill Gates. Some of you are familiar with Bill. He's rumored to be extremely wealthy, maybe more wealthy now than the money he's made off of COVID and everything than anybody else in the world. You know, trillionaire. What if you were his heir and all that wealth came to you? You say, think of all the good that I could do. Compare what you would inherit from Bill Gates. Instead, I get to inherit from somebody, from a father who's not going to die, and yet still going to give me an inheritance. That's God the Father, the creator, the one who designed the whole universe. All power. I get to be an heir with him? You say, but how are we going to share if we're all co-heirs? That's like counting time in eternity. After 10,000 years, how much time do you have left? Forever. There's no time anymore. (laughs) What you're going to inherit is so bountiful, there's no need to share because you never run out. Look at this in Romans 8, as Paul tried to describe in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, what does that mean? What Jesus inherits, I'm going to inherit? Exactly. I'm his brother now. You may be his sister now. Not you, you'd be his brother, Don, but (laughs) Damaris would be his sister. And we need to, we're sharing an unlimited inheritance. Now, not only this inheritance means the wealth of God, but also position. We're going to be co-rulers with the Son of God. We're going to be ruling and reigning with him for eternity. That's what he's saying. You guys got to remember this. I don't mean to belittle the situation, but would you compare what's coming for when we are taken to heaven to the problems that we have here? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, every problem I have is going to be solved by the rapture. Every problem. No longer going to be any problems. The only problems left for the people left behind. They're going to have serious problems. Not me. Not Julie. Not my sons. We're going to join my parents and we're not going to have any problems ever again. My father's going to say, Doug, what took you so long? Third and finally, he talks about hope according to the hope. Now, I think we have a little hard time understanding that word sometimes because of how we generally use it. You know, people in our area might say, you know, I hope that our baseball team here, the Texas Rangers, will sure get better. Well, good luck. You may hope it, but the chances of it happening, you know, are, are slim to none, it seems to me. Maybe making somebody mad when they say that who's a diehard Rangers fan, but w- what does that word really mean here? In First Peter 
chapter 1, some verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, not just a hope, a living hope. What does that mean? Uh, many times we tend to view this concept of hope as wishful thinking. We often say, I hope this happens. I hope this will come to pass. The hope set out in verse 7 here is different than the hope expressed in those kind of statements. It's not a maybe, a probably, or I really trust. It's an assuredly hope. It's a hope based on the promises of God. I want you to think about it a second. What did we study about hope in chapter 2, verse 15? The blessed hope. That is that Jesus is coming back for us. How blessed would that hope be, Kathy, if it was probably he's coming back? What if it was possibly he's coming back? No, it is he's coming back for certain. That's this hope. It's certainty. We don't assign certainty to hope that much. We tend to think it's more subjective. But when God uses it here, this word is talking about a certainty. This hope is all about the fact that we've been giving a certain future by the Savior. Now, if the blessed hope is real, and it is, and our Savior is coming back for it and appears to me to be soon, what should we be about? That brings us back to the prime directive, what we should be about. Now, is that phrase that I use, the prime directive, just kind of like an advertising tool uh, uh, some sorts of to generate motivation. Well, there are those who would argue that the Holy Spirit has given us all spiritual gifts. And he's given some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, some administration, some discernment, some faith, giving hospitality and others. So we're not all expected to be evangelists, Doug. Is there any real support for that position? I would say no, there is not. We are all to be about. Now, does that mean that some people might be better than others at it? Yes. But can you say, well, I really, I'm not gifted in the area of sharing my faith, uh, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, that's for others. Is that what the scripture teaches? Well, I want you to look at something. Let's see. What is it Jesus came to do? His primary goal, he says in Luke. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Okay? Well, you say, well, yeah, well, that's Jesus. Yeah, well, what did Jesus say at the end of John? So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. That should make it pretty clear, shouldn't it? You... I've heard somebody say, well, no, wait a second. You know, it says we're always ready to be, to give an answer. That's, that's in uh, Peter. And we should be ready. If somebody comes to me and asks me how to be saved, I should be ready to explain it to them. Is that the kind of words Jesus uses? He says, has come to seek that that's Jesus going out to them. So it's not us waiting for them to come to us. It's us going to them. Is it not? Satan's going to try and get everything, he, do everything he can to prevent you from doing that. He hates soul winners. They indicate that he's losing and God's winning. He hates them. 
He's going to try everything he can to prevent you from doing it. Oh, you don't know how to talk. You'll be embarrassed. Uh, They're going to respond. They're going to ask you questions you don't know how to answer. And over and over and over, he's got all these things. But let's look at another passage just to confirm it. It's one you should be familiar with. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you even to the end of time. I think time's a better translation than age. But now, I want you to look at that, because if some of you, I'm afraid, are reading that in an older translation, it's going to say, therefore, go teaching all nations. Is that what the word means, teaching? No. If you look in your notes, mathetueo is a specific Greek word. It means to be a disciple of one, to follow his precepts and instructions, to make, the second meaning is to make a disciple. When you says the verb here, that's what this word really means to disciple. What does that mean? What does it mean to disciple? Someone. Well, the easiest way to remember it is to remember three words win, build, and send. Win, build, and send. What do you mean? When you disciple, the first thing is you share your faith with someone and they receive Jesus as their Savior. I can remember a time in college when I made an appointment with a guy at a dorm so I could go talk to him and share my faith with him. And I went there, and I waited outside the door a little bit so I'd knock on the door right at the right time. I didn't want to knock early. And I saw a guy go in to, while I was waiting, go in that door, and I thought, well, I wonder if that's him. I knocked on the door, and a second person came to the door. It was, it was the guy I had the appointment with. The other guy who had gone in there was his roommate. And so I go in. And I'm going to sit down and talk to this guy. And his roommate's sitting, you know, six feet away on the other bed. Well, why are you doing this? This guy needs to leave. Why don't you get him to leave and go somewhere else so I can talk to this guy in private? And I started sharing the Lord with him. And the roommate said, you know, this is something you ought to do. I said, could you shut him up, please? And finally I come and I ask this fellow... Sometimes I get like less about these kind of things. But I asked this fellow, do you want to pray to receive Christ? And he said, yes. And so I said, let's, let's bow our heads and I'll help you. And I prayed to start with and he followed me and he prayed out loud. And then the Lord spoke to me and he said, Doug, do this. And I turned to that roommate and I said, would you like to pray too? And he said, yes, I'm so glad you asked me. He had him there because he wanted both of them. And I'm saying, get rid of him. You see, that's Satan. God's in control. Satan's not unless you choose to let him. And so you begin to see things as it's coming about in this prime directive. Now, after making these key statements in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it's like Paul's going to step back just a second. He's been intense. He's been in your face. He steps back, but then he's going to make a statement. And I want you to look at this statement because this statement he's going to make next is very important to him. How do I know? Because look what he says. This is a trustworthy statement. 
concerning these things. This is a trustworthy statement. What did Jesus used to say when he wanted you to really listen? Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto thee. Quoting King James because that's the way I memorized it. Verily, verily, I say, this is a trustworthy statement. He's saying you can rely on that. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Concerning these things. What things? Well, the things he's just told them about. Now, you know, he told them, he spoke about false teachers and how to deal with them aggressively in the last half of the first chapter. He talked in the second chapter of how to relate to your fellow believers, and he divided them into five different demographic groups. Then at the start of chapter three, he's talking about dealing with the pagan world in which you find yourselves. And he says, I want you to be able to speak confidently of these things. I don't want you to be intimidated. I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to be timid or are shirking about it. Stand up. Speak confidently so that those who believe in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Those good deeds are means the things he just described. I want you to be confident. I don't want you to shirk this responsibility that I am giving to you. I think that's uh, important. You know, if you put this statement that he's used, can, can speak confidently here. It's a trustworthy statement. If you spoke about it colloquially, but you can take this to the bank, guys. This is good. So we need to, to be bold in our defense. And I think as you look at this statement, these things are good and profitable for men. That is, that God's going to provide if they will accept him as their savior. We begin to see a little bit about God's plan here. And I want you to see about God's plan. This is something maybe you ought to think about several days this week. Paul wants us to understand that God's plan for salvation of the world calls for strong churches that proclaim and live the reality of the transforming gospel so that it is attractive to those who are lost. Glorifying God means making God attractive to others. This is what he wants. Now, are we fortunate that we have a strong church here? Could it be stronger? Yes. Could the sermons and teaching be deeper? Yes. Could we be more aggressive in our personal evangelism? Yes. Because, you see, the pastor can't do all that. The church has to do it. That's the plan. The church is the one that wins. The church is the one that builds. And then the church is the one that sins. I mean, Paul, he was sent by whom? The church in Antioch sent he and Barnabas out. Now, you know, you think about this. It's kind of like raising children. You win them. Well, that's conception and birth. Then what do you got to do? You say, all right, baby. You're here, you're on your own. No, you have to rear that child. You have to bring them to maturity. And then once you do that, basically you're going to eventually have to say, now it's time for you to leave the house. You need to go. Build your own life. It's the same way with, with, with discipling. And this is what he wants. Now it's interesting. As I went through and thought through this, concept of what God wants. 
it brought up a theological question for me. Some people maybe don't like theological questions. But for me, it brought up this theological Who does God want saved? Everyone? Everyone. Well, if you were to speak, Don, to a Calvinist about this, I think they would disagree with you. I know it, but the Calvinists would disagree with you. I'm not saying you're on the wrong side. I'm saying, in fact, you're on the right side. Uh, How you got there, I'm not sure. But the Calvinists would have to say no. Why? Well, number one, only the elect are saved. Meaning the ones God chose are saved according to the Calvinists. And they also maintain that God is completely sovereign. Completely sovereign. Now, what do you mean, completely sovereign? That sounds redundant. Is there any sovereignty? Let's talk about what does sovereignty mean? And we don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but let me just run through this with you. Sovereignly means that you can do whatever you want. That whatever you want to have accomplished will be accomplished. Okay. Can, is God's sovereignty limited at all? I would say yes. I would say two areas. One in his character. He can't violate his character. Can God sin? No, he can't. Not that he would want to, but when you're dealing with sovereignty, there's some things he can't do. He's limited by his character. There's also another thing. When we go back, let's go back and put ourselves at uh, the time Adam, right after he sinned. Could God destroy the world with water then? Sure. He could. Subsequently, he did. Can God destroy the world with water now? Why? Because he made a promise. When he makes the promise, he limits his sovereignty. He promises, I won't ever do that again. Right. I won't ever do it again. So you can have those kind of limitations. The, the, the Calvinist doesn't believe there's any limitations in his sovereignty. Therefore, they would say, if God wanted everyone to be saved, they would all be saved. So God does not want everybody to be saved because everyone's not going to be saved. That would be the Calvinist's argument. What does the scripture say? Don't, in other words, what I'm saying, don't listen to the Calvinists, listen to the Bible. Well, John 3, 16. Jesus, what does it say? Whosoever believes shall be saved. Why? Because God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, yeah, but maybe the world only means the elect. No, I completely disagree with that. But look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Does God want everyone to be saved? Well, then what's stopping him? Exactly. Because he gave you the right of choice. Uh, another passage just to confirm that. I like even this one better. First Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what he wants. But if God does not, if God does not want men to perish, why does that happen? Because God gave human, his human creation a will that enables them to choose between what God wants for them and what they want for themselves. We have the right to make that choice, but we also are responsible for the consequences of that choice.
Now let's move on. Titus chapter 3, verse 9, 9 through 11. There's a lot of words here we've got to look at. And uh, I want you to see this because it's basically a, an admonition for conscious, cautious vigilance and assertive protection of his church. That's what he wants. He wants cautious vigilance and assertive protection of his church. Now, it starts in verse 8. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about false teachers again. Now, wait a second. Haven't we already talked about those? Yeah, we did. The last half of, of chapter one. I want you to think about something. If you write somebody a letter, and at the very first of your letter, you tell them about something that's very important to you, and you, you tell them rather detailed, then you write them some more stuff, and at the end of the letter, you tell them about that same thing again, what does that indicate? That's important or concerning to you. And it's important and concerning to Paul. And that's one of the reasons why Julie said, I'll let you teach DU if you'll teach you about false teaching. And I'm so glad she did. Now, when I'm studying this afternoon for it, I may not be as glad. But other than that, I am. But let's look at some of these words because I want to understand. It starts out with this word. In the 1977 version of the New American Standard, it translated this word shun. Uh, in the 1995 uh, update, it changed it back or changed it to avoid, which is the same word that's used in the King James. This word here, peristemi, uh, is one that's a little difficult to understand, and especially if you look at the grammatical setting here. It says to place around one. What does that mean, to place around one? It doesn't sound like a void at all. To stand around, to turn oneself about for the purpose of avoiding something. And that's really the key here because this word, it's in the present tense, middle voice, uh, imperative mood. Now, most of us understand present tense. Most of us understand imperative mood. It's a command or a mandate. But middle voice is difficult to understand because we don't have middle voice in English. We have active voice and we have passive voice. Middle voice is saying that the action is done upon the subject by the subject. What he's saying is when you come upon these kinds of things I'm going to tell you, turn around and go the other way. You know, mothers used to tell their sons, when he says he's going to fight you, you just turn around and walk away. They didn't seem to understand it means the first place you're going to get hit is in your back. Yes? Uh, I understood that scripture to mean like when you witness to somebody two or three times and the Holy Spirit hasn't moved them, that you should turn and walk away. But that's about false teachers, not about This is, yes, as you're going to see. This has to do with false teachers, not talking about sharing your faith, I do not believe. Uh, let's, let's look on because who is it that you're supposed to turn around and walk away from? First, it's not really a person, it's a thing, foolish controversies. Now, foolish is a word that can be translated, this Greek word, foolish, impious, or godless. But the word is 
moros. What English word do we get from that? Moron. You got to say it right. Moron. In other words, these con. Well, I'm going to plead the fifth. What we've got here is a situation where he's talking about these moronic controversies. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to look at all these words because it's important to see it. It's Zaytisis. Zaytisis. Paul speaks here of controversies and contentions, contentious debates and arguments. It's something where both sides are just fighting each other and it's going nowhere. Every time Paul uses this, this word in his writing, it always has a negative con- uh, contention or negative connotation. He's saying, stay away from those kind of foolish controversies. Don't get involved in them. Turn around and walk away. Or foolish genealogies. Now, genealogy, the word is pretty simple here. It simply means a record, you know, of descent or lineage. But many Jewish scholars in Paul's day would seek to make ridiculous applications from the genealogies in the Bible. Now, am I saying we just ignore the genealogies in the Bible? No, they're important to be there. And when he didn't, but the stuff they would come up, they would even use those to come up with genealogies of angels and all these things going on. And I didn't have the time this week to even look at, at this is so complex, what's involved in this. But they would just... Uh, you know, as they're building over the years, it just became ridiculous. Then they say we also need to stay away. And by the way, there's an and between each of these things, which means all of them go back to this concept of moronic or foolish. Okay? I just like saying that. Very, you could probably tell. Strife. It's a wrangling or a contention. This type of strife he's talking about is usually self-centered and always contentious. And then disputes. Disputes here can mean a fight or a combat or a quarrel. And it's always persons at variance. So those disputes, we don't need to have these in the church, he's saying. You need to walk away from them. They are unprofitable, that is useless, and they are worthless, uh, devoid of force, truth, or success. He's saying you need to stay away from these things. Don't let people do these things in your church. Well, where does it say that? Well, that's the next verse. He starts out, reject a factious man. Now, factious is probably a word we don't use too often in the English. I don't know if you use it regularly or not. I don't. But reject a factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted, is sinning, and being self-condemned. So what does that mean? What is involved here? Well, let's look at that for, for just a second. To reject means to refuse or to decline. Refuse or decline. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, this phrase, have nothing to do with, is this same word, parateiemoi, that we translated here, reject. Have nothing to do with it. Reject. Paul used it again in 2 Timothy 2.23. He said, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. The word refuse here is the word, the same word. So he says he wants us to reject certain things. 
And the first thing he wants us to reject is, the, the, the next thing he wants us to reject is these factious people. Now, factious here means schismatic, a follower of false doctrine. When you hear this word in the Greek, I think you'll know the English word we get, heretikikos. What word do you think we get from heretikikos? Heretic, yes. Factious means a follower of false doctrine who wants to contend with those who believe in the truth. And we need to reject them. Now, what does it say about them? It says they are perverted, right? This is a extrafo, and it means to turn inside out or to invert. Now, I want you to think about this word because I think it's important to see the aspect of what's going on here. It uses perverted in, when it translates this word in the New American Standard. In the King James, it uses the word subverted. But I think the translation in the ESV may be more insightful. It's warped. Warped. Well, now let's talk about this concept because we understand what the word warped means. Something was supposed to be in a particular shape and, si and then it's gotten twisted. You know, uh, there was a storm that occurred like two years ago and some of it, we all lived through it here in Dallas and it was so harsh that it blew water in one of my back doors, the utility room, and into the wood floor in the kitchen. Has the wood floor in the kitchen ever been the same since? Nope. Julie and I are still fighting with the insurance company, but we're going to be successful soon, I think. But there's boards that are up and some that are skewed. So those who know wood well, water and wood don't mix unless you got it under control. You let water sit on wood, it's going to warp. Now you think, well, wood's soft. What about metal? Does metal ever warp? Heat. Heat will cause metal to warp. There are other things that... So what you see here is these people have become warped because of the influences of sin. It may be in the form of heat. It may be in the form of water. But it gets in there, that moisture or that heat, and it warps them. And then you just have to basically replace the wood or the metal because it's not going to go back. And what they're saying here is you go to these people once or twice with a warning this is not right we can't allow this and they say well I'm not listening to you or something more derogatory than that and then they say well then you're going to have to get rid of them they're going to have to leave the church you know our pastors talked about that and uh, that's what's going on here what did one President Trump's <coughs> for the vaccine warp speed yeah, but warp speed there is different than warped. Warp speed has to do with a measure in space that allows superb speed, let's say, or, or supercharged speed. This is a little different. It's spelled, but you know, some words are spelled the same, but they can have completely different meanings from one from the other. Bear and bear still spelled the same way, and yet one you're maybe carrying, and one may be something that's going to chew you up, you know, assuming if it's you and me are there. 
I'm confident I can run faster, not than the bear, but than you. So I'll be safe. That's a, you like that, huh? Okay. Now, so we want to avoid that type of people. And members of the church which persist in this manner, they're going to need to leave the church. So how do we take these final admonitions that Paul has given us? Well, like I pointed out first, false teachers and false doctrines are really important to Paul. Paul here is about purity. We must preserve. That's why he told Timothy, study to show yourself all approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be, who can rightly divide the word of truth. That's what we need to be about. Purity of the scriptures. Instead of labeling ourselves Armenians, our Calvinists, Biblicists. What does the Bible say? That's what we should be about. You don't study the teachings of a man. You study the teachings of the scripture. We're to be about that. Number two, these concepts that he's given us, they need to inspire us that we need to stand up for what's right. So many times we think, well, I'm not going to do anything. Or, you know, if I stand up, I may be embarrassed. I remember my freshman year at the University of Texas. I think I was a little bolder than, than I am now. I was in a class of 600, and we were studying, it was the American history, early American history. And as this professor started, he started saying, you know, I'm sitting there kind of down near the front, 600 people there, and he's saying, you know, uh, American history was really shaped by its religious organizations. I'm thinking, I'm going to like this class. I'm going to like this guy. And they had a great influence in our history and what we, the kind of nation we have become. And they've caused more problems than we can probably ever solve. Than I think. And he said, you know, the worst of those in our country are the Southern Baptists. And then he said, do we have any Southern Baptists here? And I decided I'm not raising my hand. I'm standing up. And I stood up, and I think it shocked him a little bit. And he said, well, this is a fine example of the problem. And I said, you are going to allow through intellectual honesty uh, rebuttal, are you not? Because I have some people I could bring who would share their positions. Sit down, he said. We're not going to talk about that. You're interrupting my lecture. But did most of the people in the class afterwards say, I'm sure glad you did that. And it, I thought, what am I doing? So I'm glad that my exam will only have my social security number on it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's time to, we have to stand up. We have to speak out when wrong is being taught or presented. We have to do that. Now, I don't know if I ever told you this story or not. If I told, I know I told it in a Sunday evening. Did I ever mention in here the time that I and my sons walked out of a our church service. It was during a time when there was an interim pastor and he was talking about salvation. He talked about this band being there and that they had played and one of the band members decided to come down and afterwards wanted uh, to be saved. Interim pastor said, I talked to him, I looked at him and I said, son, you can't be saved until you cut your hair. Well, I immediately started looking around. I was up in the balcony in the old service uh, looking around, is anybody reacting to this? 
and I didn't see any reaction. So I stood up, and in a voice like this, I said, boys, we're leaving. Well, that caused a little reaction. <laughs> and we walked out. I don't know what happened after that. I couldn't believe that somebody would say that from the pulpit in our church, you have to cut your hair to be saved. That's heresy to me and the kind of people that need to be pointed out. Maybe I should have stood up and said something to him right in the middle, but I didn't do that. But we left. You know, Peter instructs us. He says this, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That's in 1 Peter 3.15. That's something that we should be prepared for. You see, a believer must be willing to warn somebody who's causing divisions or factiousness in the church. Warning should not be heavy-handed but in a loving way, intending to enable a person to correct their divisive behavior so that they can be restored as a valuable component to the fellowship of the body. But if they refuse their behavior, to correct their behavior or are unable to make such correction, they have to be separated from the body. It's like if you got a cancer, if you can't cure that cancer, what do you have to do? Cut it out. That's what Paul is teaching here. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today looking at your word. I pray that you will help us to realize the importance of being prepared to stand up and to speak the truth. And I pray, Father, that you help us not to be intimidated. It's going to get harder and harder to do in our country. And people are going to want to dismiss us and marginalize us and, and maybe even destroy us. But help us to remember you're in control. Nothing's going to happen to us that you're not going to allow. And help us to be willing, if it so happens, to know experientially the fellowship of your sufferings. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>